Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast where we are joined by experts, strategists and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I'm Yuka Koshino, IISS Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. Today, we are delighted to welcome one of the foremost experts from Japan on European and Indo-Pacific relations and security issues, Professor Tsuruoka Michito. Professor Tsuruoka is an associate professor at the Faculty of Policy Management at Keio University, specializing in international security, European foreign policy, and Japanese security and defense policy. He is also a senior associate fellow at the Center for Security, Diplomacy, and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance and senior fellow at the Tokyo Foundation for Policy Research. Prior to joining Keio in 2017, Professor Tsuroka was senior research fellow at the National Institute for Defense Studies in Tokyo. He also has experiences working in the government, first as a senior advisor for NATO at the Embassy of Japan in Belgium from 2005 to 2008, and later as deputy director of the International Policy Division at the Ministry of Defense from 2012 to 2013. He was also previously a resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and was a visiting fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies, RUSI. Professor Tsuruoka studied at Keio University and Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and received his PhD in war studies from King's College London. So, welcome, Tsuruoka Sensei. We are glad to have you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very glad to talk to you. So we're able to have this discussion at a critical juncture in Japan-Europe relations. The Japanese government has strongly condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, taken steps to pressure Russia through economic sanctions, and linked the challenge in Ukraine and in Europe with challenges with the world-based order in Asia, which he committed to respond proactively both in Asia and in the world. Notably, NATO has just held its 2022 Madrid summit attended by Prime Minister Kishida Fumio. Could you have imagined that a Japanese Prime Minister would attend NATO's summit back in 2005 when you were in Japanese embassy in Brussels? Yes, because the other time when I was in Brussels from 2005 to 8, the NATO was busy conducting operation in Afghanistan. So International Security Assistance Force (ISAF) was there, and in that context, NATO was quite serious in getting. Other countries on board, including Japan, Australia, and other countries. So the other time, the NATO often held meeting on Afghanistan at foreign ministers' level, or defense ministers' level, or even at、uh, the summit level. This time, the 2022 summit. It was not the very first time for Japan to be invited to NATO summit, because the first time Japan was invited to a NATO summit happened in 2012. At the Chicago summit, and Japan was invited, but the Japanese Prime Minister wasn't able to attend it. So Foreign Minister Gemba, there on behalf of Japan, attended it. On that occasion, the, from Australia, the Prime Minister Gillard attended. It was not for the first time for NATO to invite non-European countries or non-NATO countries from Asia Pacific region to its summit. But certainly, that、uh, this time the impact is very different because last time it was only on Afghanistan, but this time it is about、uh, NATO's engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, and also despite the fact that、uh, NATO is really busy dealing with Russia and war in Ukraine, but still NATO demonstrated that it is still able to think beyond Russia and Ukraine. 
Thank you. Could you maybe let us know why the Japanese Prime Minister was not able to uh, maybe attend the Chicago summit uh, that you mentioned in 2012? And also, just for the listeners, could you also take us through the major historical turning points in Japan's engagement with NATO, maybe even before 2012 or in the early 2000 and over the last decade? So, what brought Japan closer to NATO to begin with? The dialogue between NATO and Japan started in the 1990s mainly. Despite the fact that uh, NATO and、uh, Japan at that time showed some interest in talking to each other, the reality was that we didn't have much security interest in common. Europe was very much focused on its own business of integrating former Soviet and former Eastern Bloc countries to NATO and to the EU. That was very much the focus of、uh, Europe's interest in the 1990s. And、uh, in Japan, they, we were not really being engaged in. International security issues. It was still that Japan was only slowly beginning to think about political and security role in the region. We didn't really think of doing or, or cooperating with NATO at that time. So, the, yes, the dialogue was established, but the substance was not quite there. 9-11 and、uh, NATO's engagement in Afghanistan changed the context. It was Afghanistan where NATO and Japan met. Japan didn't send troops to Afghanistan, but、uh, the, Japan was engaged in、uh, various operations in support of a, a NATO's operation in Afghanistan or US operation there. So the refueling operation in the Indian Ocean was something that、uh, Japan was、uh, very much engaged in. And also in the 2000s,、uh, under the leadership of Prime Minister Koizumi, Japan sent troops to Iraq. And that was where also the Japanese forces met Europeans, and particularly the, the British forces in, in the southern part of Iraq where Japan was being deployed. So, there's an operation in Iraq and also the counter piracy operation off the coast of Somalia in the Gulf of Aden. Those were the things that、uh, brought Japanese forces and European forces together. When it comes to NATO and Japan specifically, it was Prime Minister Abe. So, when he was、uh, the Prime Minister for the first time from 2006 and 2007, he became the first ever Japanese Prime Minister to have visited NATO headquarters and addressed to the North Atlantic Council, NAC. That was January 2007. So, in a way, that、uh, Prime Minister Abe opened a new phase of NATO, Japan, not just dialogue, but、uh, more cooperation in Afghanistan and other places. Back to the Madrid summit, Siroko Sensei, where during his time in Spain, Prime Minister Kishida emphasized the strong links between、uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the challenges to the rules based order. This is obviously something that Prime Minister Kishida has been focusing on for quite a few months now. The Shangri La dialogue, his comment that Ukraine today could be East Asia tomorrow, really resonated with the people in the room. But what do you think are Japan's expectations for its relationship with NATO and, of course,、uh, vice versa? First,、uh, the Yes, the Japan's response to the war in Ukraine, Russia's war in Ukraine. In that context,、uh, the cooperating with NATO is very much in Japan's interest. If you look at members of G7, Japan is the only country which is not a NATO member. It is a natural extension for Japan to be more engaged, to be more involved in NATO discussions in this context. It was a more natural、uh, decision for Prime Minister Kishida to attend the NATO summit, to accept、uh, the NATO's invitation. To attend the summit in Madrid. As you rightly pointed out,、uh, Kishida and the other leaders of the Japanese government have been emphasizing the linkage between what takes place in Europe and what could take place in, in, in Asia. That sort of linkage is something that we are very much looking at. And what really 
expect from NATO? That is not a quite easy question. When it comes to what Japan could expect from NATO, there are actually many people in Japan who ask whether NATO could help us if something really serious happens in Asia involving Taiwan or involving Japan, even. Even if NATO as an alliance or as an organization cannot be involved in direct terms, in direct military terms, in contingencies in Asia, I don't think that Japan's cooperation with NATO is meaningless. There are various、uh, things that NATO could still do short of sending troops to Taiwan or sending troops to Japan. The, in the first place, the, what we expect from NATO is a political support. We often say that the NATO is the strongest alliance in the history of the world. Yes, that could be true. NATO being engaged, NATO following the situation in Asia itself. Tells something. It's going to be a great message that if something serious happens over Taiwan, for example, then it is not just Japan or the US or Australia and other countries in the region getting involved. No, other countries from other s i d e of the globe, other regions, are also watching the situation closely and playing a substantial role or supporting role, including the economic sanctions. Of course, NATO is not there to do economic sanctions, but still, NATO as a venue where allies discuss global security issues. So that is why it, it makes sense for, for Japan to reach out to NATO. And also, the re- reaching out to NATO from a Japanese perspective is not just about NATO as an alliance. It is also about reaching out to individual NATO allies. Yes, Japan has a bilateral alliance with the United States, so we don't really need NATO as a venue to talk to Americans. When it comes to other countries, the NATO can be used as a venue to meet other Europeans, like Brits, of course, or French. In terms of getting Individual European countries involved, and for us to reach out to those individual countries, NATO can be used as an effective and convenient venue. Your point about Japan expecting political support from NATO is interesting. Is this a pragmatic approach by Tokyo to NATO because it understands that it can't expect more than political support ultimately, or is it sort of building? A political support for something more in terms of NATO's activity in the region, potentially? I think it's really difficult. For NATO as a whole to get involved in military contingency in East Asia, because it's outside、uh, the Article 5、uh, jurisdiction. So it's, it's just highly, highly unlikely for NATO as a whole to be engaged. But still, individual countries, it's still possible, particularly for Britain to get involved. If something really serious happens between the US and China, for example, then the UK or Australia, I think, are likely to get. Involved in one way or another, but perhaps including in military terms. I don't intend to dismiss the possibility of European militaries getting involved in contingencies in Asia. But from a Japanese perspective, we need to also think about a sort of reciprocity between what Japan could do in Europe and what we could expect Europeans to do in Asia. On the war in Ukraine, Yesterday, Japan is imposing unprecedented l e v e l of economic sanctions against Russia. That is quite a significant contribution. But at the same time, Japan, putting aside very small provision of military equipment, non lethal、uh, equipment like a bulletproof、uh, vest, Japan hasn't and is not likely to provide weapons 
or ammunitions to Ukraine. So there is a sort of a always certain limit what Japan could do in military and defense terms to other countries, including, of course, uh, Ukraine. I don't think it's quite fair for Japan to expect Europeans to fight for Japan, but uh, Japan is not allowed to do the same for Europeans in Europe. There's a sort of a the need to manage expectations. Your previous, previous point about Abe Shinzo's opening up a sort of new relationship with NATO is also, I thought, spot on. And as a reminder, if you like, of the depth of Abe's political policy legacy, not just in Japan, but also outside Japan, which leads me to thinking about China, NATO and China. Abe's relationship with China was pragmatic and at times intense. NATO's 2022 strategic concept listed China's stated ambitions and coercive policies as challenging NATO's interests and security and values. And this was the first time that a NATO strategic concept designated China as such. It also states that NATO remains open to constructive engagement with the PRC. Since the last strategic concept in 2010, NATO's relationship with China has changed a lot, but Japan's been managing its relationship with China for far longer. What do you think NATO can learn from Japan and its relationship with China? I don't think Japan is in a position to teach NATO how to deal with China. I don't think it's Japan's role. The nature of Japan's relationship with China has always been quite complicated and quite multifaceted. That is quite important thing to be reminded. There are always a certain level of perceptions in Japan, but uh, the outside uh, Japan in Europe or in the US as well, that the relationship between Japan and China is always, always quite bad. So the Japan and uh, China always fighting with each other, and that sort of perceptions are there. That's not quite correct. The level of economic interdependence between Japan and China is really, really deep. So much deeper than Europe's relationship with China. If you talk to people who are in charge of security, the Senkaku Islands, East China Sea, uh, those who deal with those issues, yes, of course, if you talk to them, they complain a lot about uh, the Chinese behaviors and they warn that how dangerous China is. But uh, if you talk to business people in the Keidanda and the Business Association, then they don't want to be disturbed by political tensions. So they're making money out of China business is, is there. It's something that uh, they are still very much focusing on. And that is very much part of Japan's national interest. So this sort of a multifaceted nature of relationship with China is always important to be, to be reminded. The evolving Sino-Russia relationship, that strategic relationship, is operationalized around Japan to an extent. Do you think that the Sino-Russia relationship could be a catalyst for the Japanese-NATO cooperation? And perhaps uh, does South Korea have a role here as well? The evolution and the changing nature of Sino-Russia relations, that's also something that uh, Tokyo is very much uh, focusing on, looking at. As a result of the war in Ukraine, the power balance between Russia and China has already changed a lot in favor of China. Of course, in economic terms, China has been a big brother for for many years already. When it comes to security and defense and perhaps the political and uh, foreign policy areas, Russia has always been a bigger brother. China has been learning things from from Russia and including, of course, importing weapons uh, from Russia. But that sort of relationship 
is going to change and has already changed and、uh, it's going to change forever, once and for all. And that is going to have a huge impact for other countries, including, of course, Japan and, and, and also the, the Europe as well. One of the important things for, from my perspective is that we should not see China as a part of pro Russia group. The war in Ukraine has presented a huge dilemma for China. Of course, in terms of thinking about strategic competition vis a vis the United States, of course, the China still needs Russia on its side. The siding with Russia, like sending or selling、uh, military equipment, that is something Beijing has been really, really cautious. So the Americans have been warning China not to sell or not to send、uh, military equipment to Russia. China has a lot to lose from. Such business because the Americans are now very much warning Chinese about,、uh, about the secondary sanctions, and,、uh, and the Chinese companies are very much、uh, global in nature, so they, they don't want to lose、uh, the global business or business、uh, relationship with the United States for the sake of helping Russia. That's not、uh, something that、uh, the China is intending to do. So, this relationship is really complicated. So, it's not a monolithic Russia China axis. It's not. So, for us, what is important is to have a realistic assessment about the state of this relationship. And,、uh, and of course, between NATO and Japan, we, we can share a lot because、uh, we have、uh, similar concerns and interests. Very interesting to hear about how Japan has been increasingly concerned about the shifting balanced relationship between China and Russia, not just on the economic front, but also on the military front. I think I want to ask further questions about specific practical cooperation avenues between NATO and Japan. So, where do you see the key opportunity areas for the specific and practical cooperation between NATO and Japan going forward? The maritime security or cyber defense and cyber security, these are the priority areas for both NATO and Japan. So, the maritime security,、uh, of, co- of course, that、uh, in- includes uh, Japan's uh, counterparacy operation, and that, that is a good sort of excuse for Japan to be present in, in, in the area. So, the, in the Indian Ocean and、uh, the, the Gulf of Aden, and also Djibouti, it's also where we, we meet Europeans. So, the, the maritime security is, is, is one thing, but、uh, the challenge for us, and challenge for NATO as well, is how we could. Make this cooperation more serious and more vigorous. NATO and Japan have done a series of、uh, joint training involving the Japanese Maritime Self Defense Forces and the navies from NATO countries. So far, what we have been doing is, is almost like a, the friendship exercise and friendship training. We should think about、uh, how, how we could make this more. Uh, vigorous and uh, more serious, uh, uh, in, involving high end scenarios,、uh, type of、uh, exercises and,、uh, and training. The, such operational aspect is, is, of course, important, but at the same time, the, the NATO is an alliance which has been working on standardization from the very early days.、Uh, so, so, the standardization and the accumulation of、uh, NATO standardization agreement,、uh, STANAX. That, that, that is a, what NATO has achieved over the decades. As Japan is likely to get more involved in defense equipment cooperation with various NATO countries, of course, there is the United States, of course, but increasingly with European countries as well, particularly the UK. 
So this uh, standardization issue, I think it's going to be more important. So they, of course, the NATO and Japan per se are not going to produce weapons together, but individual countries and uh, individual defense industries are, are, are very much on the front line. But, uh, but this uh, NATO standardization process, the importance of which I, I think is going to increase for Japan in, in the coming years. Very interesting. And actually, just even this week, we've seen parliamentarians, Japanese industries and MOD officials traveling to attend a Farnborough air show, an international air show in, in London. We can um, actually see that momentum there. So maybe a question around interoperability between NATO countries and NATO itself. So U.S. and Japanese forces enjoy a high degree of interoperability. To what extent do you think that U.S. is interested in deepening synergies between both NATO and Japanese forces or serve a middleman kind of for better linking NATO and the Japanese self-defense force together? I'm quite optimistic about the future of synergies between U.S.-Japan alliance on one hand and uh, Japan's relations, Japan's cooperation with various European countries and various other U.S. allies, including, of course, Australia. So ensuring synergies is in America's own interest as well because of the relative decline of American power. The Americans uh, will need to work more with its allies and also the cooperation between U.S. allies is also in America's own interest because it could lessen uh, America's burden. Japan's cooperating more, working more with the UK, France, Australia, and others. That's very helpful for for Americans as well. And from a Japanese perspective as well, if US-Japan alliance, Japan's alliance with the United States, can solve all the problems that Japan faces or Japan is going to face, then there, we don't really have to think about other things beyond the alliance with the United States. But uh, the reality is far more difficult and far more complicated. So there are areas where uh, we could complement America's role in the region and beyond. So that is why the cooperation with Australia, the UK or France are the, the, the things that uh, we, we could think more about in terms of complementing and supplementing America's role in the region and beyond. So from that perspective, the the enhancing interoperability is a great challenge for Japan. And also, even more, the going beyond interoperability, what we might need to, to think about is how we could move beyond interoperability. So I understand that between the UK and the US, the navies, they, they are now using the term interchangeability. That is a more integrated, the merged type of a, a, the two countries' militaries. And that, that sort of a next phase of interoperability, next phase of cooperation, I think is, of, of course, the most advanced between the US and the UK, and particularly regarding uh, navies. But uh, the similar things are already starting to happen between various US allies, of course, particularly between the US and Australia, and AUKUS, the, the UK, US-UK-Australia cooperation, first and foremost on, the, on, on nuclear submarines, that is a very much a symbol of moving beyond interoperability because it's highly likely for Australian submarines, nuclear submarines, to be operating fully together with American submarines and perhaps from time to time at least uh, the UK submarine in the region as well. So it's going to be a fully joint operation. 
that's going to be a sort of a symbol of uh, something much beyond interoperability. So the, the question for, for Japan is, to what extent Japan is ready to think about such new step going beyond interoperability, first and foremost, of course, with the Americans. We are still wondering what sort of legal, constitutional, political, and other hurdles which would prevent Japan from doing such a thing. So that is why, from a Japanese perspective, how the UK and US are working together, including interchangeability uh, areas, how they are working together and learning from those cases and learning lessons from uh, interchangeability between the US and UK. And that's also something that uh, Japan is very much interested in. To pursue that next phase of cooperation, maybe from NATO's perspective, what might be the major hurdles for deepening cooperation with Japan? Is it more of Japan's political will or Japan's readiness to cooperate more with NATO? Or are there fundamental legal or even intelligence sharing kind of requirements that is putting hurdle on this cooperation? There are a couple of things uh, on NATO side as a hallmark or, or problems uh, or, or remaining challenges. First of which, of course, uh, relates to the war in Ukraine. NATO is now really committed to strengthen uh, de- deterrence and defense posture vis-a-vis Russia, and that takes a lot of energy. So the, the resource constraint is there. To what extent NATO or individual NATO countries, particularly those uh, are in Europe, could continue engaged in the Indo-Pacific region. That is a, a huge question. Of course, there, there are various people in Europe who say that, uh, yes, we understand that uh, for the short term, Russia is the biggest uh, threat, but in the medium and long term, China is going to be a bigger challenge or even threat sometime in the future. They argue that way, but for the moment, it's quite clear that European countries need to focus on Russia. That is not going to have a positive impact on Europe's overall level of engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. And that's what I'm very much closely following and to what extent the Europe's interest and Europe's engagement in the Indo-Pacific region is sustainable or not. And secondly, this is a bit tricky issue, but for NATO, the intelligence sharing, that, that is still a huge issue. So the classification issue is there. So despite the fact that Japan and NATO signed a security agreement, an agreement on the security of information some time ago, but uh, that is not enough. So that is a the most sort of a basic framework. NATO has this similar agreement with a huge number of countries, including uh, countries in Central Asia or even Russia. It is a quite a primitive framework that cannot guarantee Japan's access to a more deeper sort of areas uh, of NATO's business. How and what sort of a new framework NATO could think of and uh, what sort of a new framework Japan is ready to think about. And that, that, that's also uh, is something that uh, we need to think about in going forward. And that issue is, uh, is not... Uh, uh, from a Japanese perspective, it, it's, it's not an issue unique to Japan's relations with NATO, with, with the US and with the UK and other countries on bilateral terms, uh, and also the, Japan's possible more cooperation with Five Eyes and the other uh, frameworks, and uh, that, that's sort of uh, the classification and uh, the, the security clearance, and these issues are still there. So it, it's a huge 
homework for Japan as well, but at the same time, the thinking about NATO as an organization, it's also NATO's homework as well. Well, this brings us to our final section in the podcast, to our two Japan memo questions for you, Tsuroko-sensei. And the first question is, do you have a book recommendation uh, for listeners who wish to understand Japan? And as we always say, you are allowed to recommend your own books if you so choose. I thought of uh, recommending a very academic book to sound academic, but uh, but uh, the I would recommend actually a tabloid papers or weekly magazines like Shukan uh, Bunshun or Shukan Shincho or these type of things. So, or or in Japan, the 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 tabloid focusing on sport. Uh, or entertainment. It's called sports shimbun. Those are the things that are normally unintellectual or anti-intellectual or this sort of a low-level thing. But in fact, in terms of understanding Japanese society, the real shape and the real aspect and the real state of Japan society, I think these tabloid things, uh, the weekly magazine type of things, uh, would help you a lot. And in addition to that, of course, the, the TV programs, not serious t- TV news programs, but uh, more what we call in Japanese the variety. It's a morning show or evening show and these sort of things. And that, that's also a, a great guide uh, for you to understand uh, the, the Japanese society and what they are talking about and in what angle they are talking about issues. Uh, that's, that's quite helpful. That's a first for Japan Memo. So thank you for being so innovative in your in your selection. Much of the, the viewers, the, the listeners will uh, appreciate that, I'm sure. Yeah, actually, I do agree to a certain extent. I, I receive line messages from Shukan Bunshu because sometimes they do good reporting. And also it's quite fascinating that a prime minister or, you know, foreign minister, defense ministers will appear in those wide shows that you've mentioned on TV. That's a very cultural thing, but that's, I think how many Japanese would get educated on some security issues around Japan. So the final question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Let me get back to serious international security (laughs) issues. We often hear the non-Japanese talking about the possibility of Japan's going nuclear, Japan's having, developing nuclear weapons. I think it's very much out of touch from the reality in Japan. My understanding is that those who talk about Japan's nuclearization and Japan's going nuclear, I think uh, many of them have their own domestic agenda, perhaps. If you apply international relations theory, yes, it sounds that uh, it could make sense for Japan to have nuclear weapons. So this uh, applying international relations theory, that, that is a huge industry, particularly in the United States. So it's, a, it's always a quite fashionable topic. And at the same time, it is a demonstration of some level of suspicion about Japan. Some of them genuinely believe that uh, Japan could seek nuclear weapons, despite the fact that the Japanese government has always been saying that uh, it's, it's, it's not our option. We are not at all thinking about developing nuclear weapons. But uh, there are some people who, who don't trust that, that sort of uh, language and words from, from, from Japan. So lack of trust, uh, I think, uh, played some role here. But, uh, but in the end, thinking about this issue in Japan and talking to various people, for me, there is 0% of possibility for, for Japan to, to develop nuclear weapons in the foreseeable future, particularly as long as there is an alliance with the United States. It's just impossible 
for, for Japan to think of developing nuclear weapons. And uh, there's NPT, and Japan is a firm supporter of the NPT regime, non-proliferation regime. It's just uh, impossible for many Japanese to think of developing nuclear weapons, but still, the discussions about Japan's going nuclear has been there, particularly outside Japan, and it's, of course, li- likely to continue. But, but, but of course, in Japan as well, there, there are some people who, who argue for the development of uh, nuclear weapons. And there are some politicians who also talk about uh, what they call the nuclear latency, that uh, the fact that Japan has all the capabilities and the materials of developing nuclear weapons, making nuclear bombs. It has never been uh, part of a, the political mainstream discussion. I always sort of fight to counter uh, su- su- such discussions and such arguments. We were all, I think, vigorously nodding here on the team. So I think we share your your thoughts about that. It was a very uh, sort of strong, clear way to end our podcast. So thank you so much, Taroko-sensei, for that very rich discussion. And thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us on uh, another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend listening to our June episode on Japan and Asia's security in 2022 with Professor Kotani Tetsuo and Dr. Ueki Chikako Kawakatsu. If you would like a more European and arms control angle on NATO today, please give our friends over at the IISS Sound Strategic podcast series a listen on their most recent episode. And for more insightful analysis, I always also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at at Robert Allen Ward and at Yuka Koshino and Professor Tsuruoka at at Michito Tsuruoka. Thanks again and see you next time.